Hello, listeners. I'm Aaliyah with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjo Hall is joined by Tamara Soma, food system planner, assistant professor at SFU, and co-founder of the Food Systems Lab. Tamara talks about her work trying to create a more just and sustainable food system for all, and her experience doing community-engaged research in this field. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. Really delighted that you could join us again this week. We're really excited to have Tamara Soma with us this week. She's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Resource and Environmental Management at SFU, and she's also a researcher in residence with the Community Engaged Research Initiative. Welcome, Tamara. My goodness, thank you so much for that intro. Thank you for the welcome. Yeah, Tamara, I'm wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Absolutely. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm calling into this podcast from the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. I am so grateful to be here uh, working at SFU. I'm an assistant professor with the School of Resource and Environmental Management and also the co-founder and research director of the Food Systems Lab, a social innovation lab tackling food system planning issues from farm to table and beyond, hopefully space (laughs) too. Um, I'm a food system planner, very passionate about creating a just and sustainable food system for all and very grateful to be a community-engaged researcher with Siri. Yeah. And, you know, when you combine those things that you're working on, food system planning, community-based research, everything from waste management to the circular economy, there's so many different rabbit holes you can get into in terms of the different ways these things are being thought about in the contemporary moment on environmental issues, its relations to climate change and other things. But wondering if we can begin a little bit, if you could talk about how you got into your area of uh, research. You did your PhD in planning at the University of Toronto. You were a, a Trudeau scholar, but just wondering what drove you into this area of research? That's a great question. And the thing is, I'd like to think that food is something that really connects us all. It's something that when I talk about food, anyone, regardless of their age, whether it be a kindergartner or a toddler to a senior resident, someone will always have something to say about food. And that's what really is exciting about food. For me, that kind of spark started during my undergraduate program where a professor showed this documentary, and I still recommend this documentary to everyone. It's called Life and Debt, and it's set in Jamaica. It talks about the structural policies, you know, structural adjustment policies run by international institution that basically impacts everything from agriculture to tourism, you know, to farming, to retail, and just shapes the landscape in ways that I started noticing the patterns from Jamaica to my home country of Indonesia. And then as I got into it more in the literature more, you know, these are patterns that are happening around the world, whether it be, you know, the way that lands are being taken away from peasants, how our retail market has been consolidated to the most powerful, how we have these paradoxes of food insecurity amidst massive food waste, like all of these injustices, you know, are occurring all around the world. And I thought to myself, you know, if I had, if I had my choice of what to do, it would be really good to to tackle an issue that basically can impact everyone. And so I got into food in that way. 
In the work that you were doing on your dissertation, you also had connections with many community organizations that you also worked with. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the work that you did for your doctoral dissertation and also the links and working with community that you were doing at that time. Well, actually, that's interesting. I think um, a lot of people would think that my dissertation is my work at the food systems lab. Interestingly, when I was doing my, it's like as if I don't have enough work already, but that's just who I am, I guess. I did my dissertation on household food waste in Indonesia. And at the same time as I was running my dissertation study in Indonesia, I was also doing a study with my colleague, Belinda Lee, and we established a food systems lab, you know, during my dissertation to really understand how to address the issue of wasted food in a more just and equitable way that is from a systems approach. So, you know, I had those two projects going on at the same time. In Indonesia, I work with different households, with policymakers, with low-income community members, to understand the transformation in the food landscape that's happening in Indonesia that's creating this kind of disconnect between the producers, the farmers, and then the eaters, and then understanding how that impacts household food consumption patterns. So that's kind of on the one side. For my research in Canada with Belinda Lee, uh, what we realized was that, you know, we were hearing over and over again all of these different solutions to reduce food waste. And the solution was, hey, we have a lot of food waste in the system. You know, whether it be from retailer to the farm level, why don't you just feed this food waste to the poor people and then call it a win-win solution? And we thought to ourselves, you know, this is not necessarily a good way to, well, not only frame the problem, but also create a solution that's kind of more incremental based and it's not really tackling the root injustices in the system because the idea of feeding poor people food waste is just a really not a great idea at all. And so what we did with the Food Systems Lab and with my colleague, Belinda, is that we want to create a solution that is more collaborative, more just, and that takes into account diverse perspectives. So we made sure to have migrant farm workers in the room. We had food bank recipients. We had farmers from urban and rural contexts. We had you know managers of multinational retailers coming in. And I think being there at the table together, I like to think of my work as kind of setting a table and making sure that the people that should be at the table are there and have a voice and have a say. And that kind of leads me to the community engaged research work that I do is that that work is all about asking, you know, who needs to be at the table, who does not have their voices represented. And that's kind of the work of a food system planner. Mm -hmm. uh, we just interviewed last week, Paul Taylor, who works with FoodShare in, in Toronto. It's really interesting to hear some of his critiques of the charitable model, including of food banks and their framing of the problem. And so it's really interesting to hear you uh, speak this week as well on these topics. And I'm wondering, you were just recently uh, a researcher in residence with SFU's Community Engaged Research Initiative. Wondering if you can speak a little bit about the work that you were doing while being a researcher in residence and doing other research work here in Vancouver. Yes, and I would just like to say that it's such an honor and such a privilege to be identified and selected as an SFU research in residence, not just for the, the acknowledgement and the profile, but also the financial support that's been provided to my students. Like two of my students are CRE fellows. That's another great program to support students doing community engaged work. And also just like the grants, the additional grants that can help towards doing additional work with community members. And I know that, you know, 
the work of community-engaged researchers are basically fueled through these types of grants. And so that makes community-engaged work possible. So we've been doing a lot of amazing food-related work um, with the support of Siri. We did one study on sustainable business adaptation during COVID-19, where we worked with various partners, including small retailers across the city of Vancouver and the lower mainland that were sustainable. And they had a lot of difficulties trying to maintain their sustainability and zero waste practices during COVID where risk and food safety and all of these things were, you know, kind of front and center. And we worked with them to kind of leverage their voices and also identify innovative solutions that they've enacted in their um, respective businesses. We also did some exciting work with BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. We had a partnership with them trying to understand um, the issues around food access and mobility with community members that are users of nonprofit food hubs, you know, so food banks, charities, soup kitchens, and, and what have you. And one of my students worked on that. And then we also had a study that was supported by Siri with various in-kind support on uh, food asset mapping and trying to use citizen science to actually identify important food sites and spaces in the city of Vancouver and make sure that community members' voices are represented when we think about what food spaces and sites are important for community food security. So just, I mean, those are just a few, but I hope there will be long-term collaboration and future for more research with Siri. I'm wondering just in your in your research, as you look at other cities and other projects where on a regional or national level countries, regions, or civil society organizations are doing interesting work related to food justice and other areas. I'm wondering, what are the areas that you draw inspiration from in terms of what's happening on the ground in other places that that you think would be really interesting to look at in a context like Vancouver or, or Toronto? Well, actually, I will just say that I want to do a shout out. The Vancouver Park Board is doing a lot of work trying to center Indigenous voices in um, their upcoming update to the local food action plan. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to be a part of that project. And the city of Toronto is actually putting a lot of work and emphasis on Black and Indigenous food sovereignty. And so they've been working hard into tying that kind of lens, you know, that food justice lens in the work that they're doing. And so I'm really looking forward to the launch of their overall food strategy that will integrate Black and Indigenous voices. There's a lot of great work going on around the world. I think the word justice is becoming, I think people are becoming more and more comfortable with that word. And I'm happy about that because I think that a lot of like in the past, at least I know as a researcher, a lot of the solutions and the work interventions by policymakers have mostly been kind of band-aid solutions that are not taking into account that systemic and structural history of oppression or injustice. But now things are starting to change. And I, and I, I really feel very optimistic and I'm very glad to be part of that work. Yeah, that's a really great uh, point. You know, there's always been that tension between charity and justice within nonprofit civil society work, and it leads to tensions between organizations and also kind of what upstream policy change can look like, which can actually affect a lot more people in a more just way. And uh, it's really interesting debates that have been ongoing for decades, but it's great to see that some of the, the conversation debates in the food justice movement have been uh, moving forward and be, have become far more mainstream in the past couple of decades. I'm wondering around some of the new terms that land down, they sometimes function in a 
civil society context or an academic context, but maybe for some of our listeners who might not know these terms like the circular economy or the repair economy or repair infrastructures, these words get used. And um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what is uh, meant by them and what are the kind of interesting ideas that underpin some of these ideas? That's a great question. And I don't want to take too long, but I also want to kind of highlight the nuances around the term because the term circular economy can be used just like the term sustainability and can be easily co-opted by, you know, any groups or any corporations or any, um, you know, individual interests, you know, that would kind of actually take it away from perhaps like what I think would be its true potential. And so a circular economy is basically an economy or a system that designs waste you know, from that actual system, because it's basically the opposite of a take, make and dispose system, which we basically have for the most part now. But the thing is, you know, the idea of a circular economy, I think it's not about just saying that, oh, there's a lot of extra bread. And so we take that bread and then just kind of make it into like a crouton company or something like that. It's, <laughs> I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with making, you know, taking like, you know, stale bread and turning it into a crouton. Don't get me wrong. But I think the whole idea is really about prevention. The whole idea is about taking only what is enough. Like, you know, and I would like to say that circular economy, and this is not necessarily included, is really the concept of enough. You know, what is enough for our society? Because the idea that, and I would be very critical of ideas of circular economy that's just based on like, oh, you just extract the most value out of that resource and create more companies and just sell more things and then just create more products that will require more packaging. And it's like, no, 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 no. Now, now we have a whole, you know, a whole swath of other issues that we didn't originally have. And so I like to kind of like pull it back a little bit and also urge people to think about scale when it comes to circular economy. And then when it comes to repair economy and repair infrastructure, I come from Indonesia, a culture, you know, traditionally where we would have people like vendors coming, you know, in front of our house and they would fix shoes, they would fix clothing. You know, we come from a culture that is all about repairing and fixing. And I can see that change has been very, very rapid in Indonesia where you're losing those skills, you're losing those vendors and the people that would come around and fix your TV and fix your tools or whatever, because now it's just cheaper to buy things new. And so I actually had a, I had a Mac where I had an issue with my Mac and I took it to the, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I basically took it into the Mac store and they said that it's cheaper to just buy a new one because the cost of fixing it would be very expensive. And then I was just like, well, I don't really have money for that. I took it back home. And then my son, who's 13, who's like very, very handy, he basically tampered around with it and it started working again. And I was thinking to myself, like, oh my goodness, you know, um, like, why can't we nourish and nurture and invest in those skills so that we're not just increasingly mining more resources and you know, more natural resources to create more laptops, you know, that we actually don't need. And so it's really about challenging this concept called plan obsolescence, right, where things are actually made and designed to not function after, you know, a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's amazing. Such an interesting topic when you look at the the ways our waste is growing, particularly around computers and technology and the longer term implications of this. Tamara, I'm wondering in doing community engaged research, obviously we know from 
talking to scholars in the field, this is a, a form of research that takes more time to do because of the amount of relationship building time that's required to have that level of trust to be working with communities over a, a longer period of time. Oftentimes, communities that you're working with, the knowledge dissemination, it will have more impact if it's done working alongside communities in different formats that aren't the traditional peer-reviewed journal article. But the tension that emerges, of course, is that when you go through tenure and promotion processes within faculties, we're still functioning in a system where certain things are valued around publishing and research. And those aspects of materials that are produced through research that have an impact on community aren't necessarily looked at in the, in the same way. And I'm wondering how you approach these challenges as a scholar who's you know, gotten a doctoral scholar awards and shirk funding and those types of things, how you manage the additional time commitments and time investment that it takes to do these forms of engaged research? That is such a great question. Um, and I think I will say as a relatively junior scholar, you know, I graduated from my PhD in 2018. So I'm still traversing around the landscape of academia, I do know that in terms of mainstream academia, I know what really gets valued the most and what really gets valued the most for the most, for the most part. So what gets valued the most for the most part is basically publishing in high impact factor journals. And it's almost like, well, if you get your work published in these extremely high impact journals, it's, it's like a shoe in that you would get that either reward or that tenure piece. And I feel that increasingly particularly within the landscape that we are in right now, I think we really need to rethink this relationship with academia and the kind of style of doing work that's more kind of like a, a mill, right? Like, or a hamster wheel kind of thing, where when you work with community, time does not work that way. Relationship building does not work that way. There's lots of ups and downs. It's not just a straight line from the point of conception to like the point of article publication. And the kind of work that actually empowers community are not necessarily journal articles. The work that empowers community might be an arts-based project, might be photography. And that's something that we work on at the Food Systems Lab, you know, using photo voices, really leveraging and showcasing the beautiful photography work of citizen scientists and how they identify important food spaces. And the thing is, you know, for the most part, although maybe some universities are different, there's just a lot of universities or academics that are not necessarily, you know, there's no checkbox for that, you know, for that kind of creative work, depending on your discipline. Again, you know, I'm talking about this from a non-arts-based discipline. And so I think that it's really important to kind of factor that in, that community-engaged work takes longer. Community-engaged work takes a lot of skills that are soft skills that might not necessarily be considered in a regular or a typical tenure and promotion process. And so I think, you know, rewarding, acknowledging that skills and also creating maybe like some best practices or, or templates and more awareness for universities to value that work, I think would be very, very critical. And I think Siri, you know, your space is, is really to do all of that work, which I really appreciate because in this time, we need research that matters. We need research that can impact communities in good way and not research that's just going to be hidden behind a massively expensive paywall that is hard to read for community members. And for me, as a publicly engaged scholar, you know, this type of work is what really drives me. 
Thanks for that, Tamara. I think it's such an important point that you're making. Uh, and even myself as an outsider to the university who you know worked as a community organizer and did other things, being inside of a public institution where, you know, I teach occasionally, I do some writing, but I'm not a professor. And so my role is a little bit different and outward facing and trying to figure out where the important knowledge production and research that happens at a university, kind of a core function of what it is, how can it have a greater impact in the broader public? How can these ideas be disseminated in a way that they get out to a broader public, to policymakers, to others? And there are some inherent tensions that are still left in the context of institutionalization that I think are really important to work through. I think of, for example, people like Hannah McGregor in publishing, who is looking at scholarly means of peer review for uh, podcasting. And so, you know, working with uh, Wilfrid Laurier University Press, that there's maybe other ways and models of peer review that can be constructed, especially for community-engaged researchers that look at ways and, and include community participation in those forms of peer review so that we can also go through important processes of examining the rigor of projects and, and those types of things. But I think having the community voice there is part and parcel of that, particularly in community-engaged research, would be really interesting to, to look at. And even looking at you know ethics principles, oftentimes they're written from the perspective of the university so the university doesn't get sued. And, and in, in some ways, looking at interesting projects in the community, ones that Hives for Humanity did in the downtown east side and others that were involved in the manifesto for ethical research in the in the downtown east side, that looking at ethics from a community perspective and making it a conversation where just the institutional point of view isn't the one that's valued makes for a a much more interesting, alive conversation. Yeah, actually, I wanted to mention, um, if you ever have the opportunity, I think it would be great for you to interview Dr. Max Liberon from Memorial University of Newfoundland. You may know of her already. She just recently launched her book called Pollution is Colonialism. But what I think is really inspiring from her work that I know of is that the work that she does is actually vetted and peer-reviewed by the community by her community or by the community where she's doing the research, where the research is situated. And I think that's really important because we know there's multiple, you know, records, historical records, and even even until now of research that's done in a very exploitative way, where community members are not fully aware to the extent or not, you know, they, they don't have the same type of involvement or just like where things are not done in an ethical way. And I think even within the research ethics process, you know, a lot can be missed by, you know, by just forms, but it's really the soul of the research, right? That's like how I like to look at things. It's just really what is that research intended to do? And that is accountability that is not just to the university, but it's actually accountability to your relations on the ground and to the people that you work with. And so I think Dr. Max Liberon has a lot of great kind of insight and resources, and I've, I've been quite inspired by her work. I'm wondering if you can talk, I know you've got a Shirk-funded project currently underway. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about this project. Very grateful to Shirk for the funding. Uh, so this is a Shirk Partnership Development Grant to work with partners from Public Health Association of BC. I'm also working with Dr. Lenore Newman of the University of Fraser Valley and also Dr. Nabin Ramankuti from the University of British Columbia. And what we're doing with this project is really to try to understand 
how to scale up the potential of scaling up the farm to school programming or movement. And I think the reason why I'm so excited about this is because BC, you know, we have the Buy BC, Feed BC, Grow BC program. And, um, you know, BC is a very strong agricultural province. And I think that, you know, with my food loss and waste research, what we know is that farmers have lots of really great food and for various different reasons have problems with connecting to the eaters, to the people that will eat their food, even here, provincial, like locally. And so thinking about well, how can we really increase, you know, healthy, nutritious food for the students, increase food literacy, ensure alternative markets and support for farmers in BC, and really creating that system that's based on just like a shortened food supply chain. I'm really excited to be, you know, looking into this project and looking at the feasibility of scaling up this program. But most importantly, what I'm super, super excited about is that we're not just talking about just, you know, the regular horticultural products, but we're talking Talking also about the indigenous food sovereignty piece by thinking about indigenous food providers. So for indigenous children, particularly, how can we make sure that there's more connection with that indigenous food? And so farm to school is not just about just the typical traditional concept of farm that you might think about, but also thinking about indigenous food landscape as well, particularly for indigenous focus or uh, dominant schools in the province. Tamara, I'm, I'm wondering with the pandemic context, how were food systems challenged from the perspective of equity from your vantage point? I, I imagine there's lots of research going on and underway in, in the future, so there may not be some findings yet. But just wondering if you can share some thoughts on how the pandemic context challenged our existing food systems. So, yes. And I think you know, we always talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, kind of exacerbated the already underlying injustice and the underlying inequity. So it's really not a surprise, particularly when we did our study uh, for the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition project on food access. We saw how low-income community members who rely on and depend on access to some of these nonprofit food hubs, they had a lot of issues with accessing food when many of these centers, centers that provide food, were shut down during the pandemic. I mean, you know, you talk about not having income to just go and choose to go to a supermarket like many of us or choose to get a delivery service to protect your health. I mean, people having to go out there and then at the end, you know, these places that they rely on are closed. I mean, that's just harrowing the fact that we've come to a point where we created that system where it, this needs to happen. And then another thing also that I think important is that, you know, globally with SDG 2, Sustainable Development Goal 2, you know, the hope is to get to zero hunger by 2030. And I think the pandemic just completely, you know, dashed that process. And so I, I really hope that we can start tackling problems and going to the root cause of it instead of just doing a lot of different band-aid solutions, because we know that we actually have the funds available if we started. And I would say this, I think this is really important uh, for food work is to really tax people that are wealthy and really properly tax them so that we can actually start funding all of these important social services program. Because at the moment, you know, a lot of these things are just done through volunteers and charities, and we can't rely on long-term food security and resiliency with volunteers and just charity alone. 
Tamara, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar and sharing some of your your work and research. Really delighted that you're here at um, SFU doing such interesting work and look forward to collaborating with you some more in the future. Thank you so much, Em, and thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast. Looking forward to seeing you again soon, hopefully. Yeah, (laughs) take care. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Tamara Soma. You can find out more about Tamara's work in the show notes below. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.